appreciate it. No, appreciate like a short eye. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. There you go. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by another host, Tablet Senior Writer Liel Leibowitz. Hello to you, you lying dog-faced pony soldier. Whoa. Isn't that the greatest word ever? Pony soldier? Did you not see this Joe Biden thing? I did not. Did he call someone a pony soldier? A very lovely woman asked him a very innocuous question. He turned around and said, no, you didn't. You lying dog-faced pony soldier. Wow. That and then guy... she was like, what? He was like, it's from an old John Wayne movie. And everyone was like, no, it's not. We've checked every single John Wayne movie. It was it's literally no movie. Oh, it was big in Delaware. That, in, that slander, that slur was big in Delaware in the 1950s. It was from a, a, a pre-talkie. That's I want that guy to be president just for the retro quality right? of it, just just to take us back in time. Uh, Liel and I are alone in the studio today. Stephanie Butnick has jury duty, so it's just me and Liel to celebrate the upcoming Chag, known to the Gentiles as Valentine's Day. It's real Valentine's. Yeah, that's right. And we will be speaking with some people who know something about love. Some amorous Jews today. They are, uh, among others, we're going to have the cast members of the web series Soon By You about dating in the modern Orthodox world. How Carp. One of our favorite guests from the Apology episode came to our live show in Cincinnati to tell us a very, very special story. And then if you like hearing us whisper sweet nothings into your earbuds, wait until you hear the lovely singing voices in our interview with cantorial student Jacob Sandler. Yes, he gets us singing. We really do put you in the mood for love. This today. is love is in the air. <laughs> In 2020. As, as is the coronavirus, but hey, you know, <laughs> you win some, you lose some. So the uh, the updates on our lives, Stephanie is currently doing civic duty, doing jury duty somewhere in the five boroughs. Uh, Stephanie was in Scotch Plains, New Jersey, having a, a, a great event there a few days ago. Uh, maybe we'll get the update next week. Liel, you were in the motherland, right? I was in beautiful Israel. Why? For my grandmother's one year uh, azkara for a memorial service. Yeah. Um, had a chance to sit and study some Talmud with my Ger Hasid cousins, who uh-huh. I, I dearly love. Uh-huh. And again, you know, we're often kind of like, you know, funny about these matters here. But every now and then, I really do get the urge to be sincere when I sit with people who you would think we have absolutely nothing in common. But then you realize we, we are truly, literally and metaphorically speaking, family. Yeah. And when we get together, that love, that connection is completely palpable. We have spent very little time talking about the fact that you're related to Gerers. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did – these are first cousins of yours? Second these cousins? These are first cousins. So who went who went Gerer in your family? My grandmother's sister's Shula. Married okay. a Ger Hasid. Okay, and this is this is a particular sect of Hasidim. What is their what's their like their hashkafa? What's their vibe? Like what what makes a Ger Hasid? I'll put it like this: okay. uh, When we're sitting in the cafe after the memorial service right. for my grandmother, someone was talking about a a person who's become a Balchuva, who's found religion later in life, and became a Ger Hasid. And one of my cousins, who is a Ger Hasid, said, "Really, no one becomes Balchuva and becomes a Ger Hasid." And I asked, "Why not?" And my cousin said, well, because it's perfectly fine to be like a really religious Jew and not go all the way to where we are. Why would you ever do that? I mean, we were born into it, but <laughs> we have no choice. In your right mind, why right. would you ever come here? 
It's so interesting. I don't have any Hasidim, any black hatters, any Haredi in my family. I have modern Orthodox cousins in Israel whose parents, my mother's first cousin, her husband, actually were uh, leaders of the conservative movement in Israel. But then, if you know, there's not much of a conservative movement in Israel. So if you grow up kind of conservative, conservadox, like observant conservative, you sort of got to pick. Are you going secular or are you going modern Orthodox? And they're, you know, they're Orthodox. But I don't have anyone who's like got the hat and the beard. I have and to the, tell you, know, you it's, it's, it's a great crying shame. You have Hasidic material <laughs> written all over you. Basically, and this is the thing I think that I, I kind of realized this week because we were hanging, we were talking, and at some point the conversation got kind of really elevated. And then I thought, you know, move the dial like three clicks to the right. And we're talking about Jerry Garcia right. in like 1973 right. eating shrimps on the bus on the way to Monterey. Like, right? That's yeah. kind of the vibe. It's yeah. really the essence of not just observing the strictest interpretation of the law, but really trying to find this, this emotional, m- spiritual connection. Mystical core to it which all. Which I love. Yeah, no, and totally. Which you would love too. I want to hang with your Ger Hasidim you uh, cousins. They're great guys. I had a slightly different experience, but in its way, no less mystical. By the way, while you're talking about Jerry Garcia on the bus, were you on the conference? call when I, when we were all doing like a pre-show prep and Rebecca, my 13-year-old, was in the car with oh, me. Yes. And she was saying, Dad, can you explain the, gra- the Grateful Dead to me? Which is a really deep question because, it, you know, I could say, I mean, I think we'd been listening to, you know, Uncle John's band or Casey Jones or something had come on <laughs> come on the playlist in the car. And, you know, I could say, well, it's a it's a group from about 1967 like, to Rebecca, 1995. I explain the Dead but, to you, but I could give you this brownie. Right. And you'll eat it and in 35 <laughs> minutes you'll understand everything about this band. I mean, I, I <laughs> it's really hard to explain the dead because it's so much more than a band. Two things but, never made sense to me before I tried them on meat. I know this is a cliche thing to say. One is the Grateful Dead. The second is tennis. And uh, tennis. I'm like, weed oh, helped you understand tennis. I am. This is a great game. I just have to move my head <laughs> left <laughs> and right. I'm so into this now. I had my own mystical experience in Wyoming, Pennsylvania, and. A bunch of people came, like they'd set up 50 chairs. I think 45 of the chairs were were filled with super curious, interesting people um, of all ages. A young rabbi from Lebanon, Pennsylvania, brought his 20s and 30s group, his like young singles, of which there were five or six, and they were super into it, and they listened to the show, and they wanted copies of the book. And it was magical. The Jewish Cultural Committee that organizes their author series was three people, none of whom is Jewish. <laughs> Okay, so one of them was Nancy Russo, who's married to to Paul something Jewish, and Nancy is is Italian Catholic by upbringing. The main woman, the the like director of cultural life for the Jewish Federation, is Amanda Hornberger, whose husband is like something German Lutheran. She herself grew up Congregationalist. She's on the vestry of her United Church of Christ Congregationalist Church. I've always said that the Congregationalists <laughs> are great out. And then there was a local librarian named John who grew up in Baltimore, where he did sixteen years of Catholic school and then went off to college. I mean, literally none of these people is even. And I said, guys, every time we meet. A, a Gentile on our show, it turns out they're a quarter Jewish. And these people, like zero Jew in them. And yet they are keeping the Jewish heart beating in Wyoming, Pennsylvania. They were interested. They were curious. They're booking good authors. They're running great programs. The people they bring in are asking smart questions. Jews by choice. We had a, a convert who showed up. Uh, Sherry came and said, thank you for your your help on my journey. The podcast has been meaningful to me. Uh, Gentile spouses of Jews. What a ride. Wyoming, Pennsylvania 
was among the greatest afternoons of my is, life. Is how it ought to be. Is how right? it ought to be. Whatever, New York. Like, fucking A. Why am I missing Pennsylvania? Right. It, it, the, the, there are Jews Start everywhere. spreading the news. Start spreading the news. And I'm I wanna leaving see, today. You could do an event at the Barnes & Noble in Union Square, and you'll get 53 people. And I go to Why I'm Missing, and I get 40. Right. And in a town... That's probably like 12,000 people. Forget numbers. You get people who are truly engaged. Truly engaged. And so grateful. And they're listeners. And the ones who aren't listeners, I think, are going to become listeners. I, it, was, it was magical. Speaking of magic, Amazon is somehow making the Nazis disappear. In News of the Jews this week, uh, we learned from the New York Times it's about time. that Amazon is, and I quote, quietly canceling its Nazis. Over the past 18 months, the retailer has removed books by David Duke, a former leader of the Ku Klux Klan, as well as several titles by George Lincoln Rockwell, founder of the American Nazi Party. Amazon has also prohibited volumes like The Ruling Elite, The Zionist Seizure of World Power, and A History of Central Banking and the Enslavement of Mankind from its virtual shelves. What do we think of Amazon taking a strong hand to I'm, keep I'm not- Nazi literature? Out of its store. I'm not down with it. I'm not either. Why I not? I tell you, I'm, I'm because here's the thing: once you let a major conglomerate start making judgment calls about what is and is not permissible for its, you know, captive audience to read, I think you're sort of screwed. Like, I'm actually kind of a free speech absolutist in this way. Like, yes, I want everyone to read David Duke. If only because once you do, unless you're a total freaking maniacal moron, you'd understand that this is absolute drivel. I actually want like free copies and like every show be like, hey, guys, here you go. And, you know, try to get your way through Mein Kampf. You can't get 12 pages into it. It's the most boring stuff you'll ever find. The beginning is funny. The middle sags a little the, bit. <laughs> the characterization gets a little thin toward the end. Still never figured out how it ended because <laughs> I, you know, never read it. No, but really, like, do I really want Amazon making this call? Then why not the next step being like, well, you know... Uh, this type of, you know, ideology is also quite offensive to us and, and maybe the sort of history isn't this type of thing we want people well, to read. And like, you can imagine, I don't want that. you can imagine where it goes very quickly to, you know, Jews in the Middle East or Zionists saying, we don't want to read, you know, the Hamas charter and, right. and Palestinian activists saying, we don't want to read this book about the founding of Israel. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's all of a sudden you have a lot of people who authentically believe that they are keeping genocidal mm-hmm. literature out of the hands of other people saying what people can and cannot read. And you add in the fact that Amazon really does have a kind of monopoly power it over does. what we're reading yeah. at, at this you, point. You can't so, find so, stuff these days I, elsewhere. I'm not down with this at all. And nope. and it's it's not because – and again, the, your point that when you spend time with Nazi thinking, it, you realize what drivel it is. Right. I mean having interviewed white supremacists, neo-Nazis, they're pretty – boring, uninteresting. It's not just that. The thing I love about talking to white supremacists and Nazis, which I've also done on occasion, is their concept of the level of Jewish command and organization. Big, have you ever been on a shul committee meeting? That's right. <laughs> like, we couldn't even decide what to do for the kiddish for like to be shvat, like, no, we right. are totally incompetent, just like the rest of the world. They'll take their volumes of Talmud off the shelves and, like, open to, you know, tractate, like, moron, and say, like, you see this line here where it says Jews are supposed to dominate the world? That's what Jews are taught in school. It's like, wait, which Jews are these who are learning Talmud in right. Hebrew school? Like, the, the 1% of 1% of American Jews. And those who do spend days arguing about arguing this one sentence that. that you just read. No, they think we're very impressive. And you know where you find some of those Jews? Well, one fewer of them at the Harvard Club. My favorite one story. Fuhrer of them? Fuhrer of, ooh. The New York Post reports that Vanessa Levine, age 28, has been expelled from the Harvard Club. Now, of course, as a Yale man, this story is just... This, like, You're loving everything I'm already so into this story. Uh, <laughs> she attended a... You fit- called your friends Pip <laughs> and Jonesy <laughs> from Skull and Bones. Be like, 
Cheerio, boys. Look at those cats over at Harvard and whatnot. So... Vanessa Levine, age 28, attended an event last year at the Harvard Club called The Hundred Years' War in Palestine. It was a lecture by Rashid Khalidi. She claims that she sat peacefully and then during the Q&A session asked how Mideast peace could be achieved if Palestinians are taught, quote, to support terrorism against Jews and Israelis. According to The New York Post, the audience erupted in mob-like fury at her query, according to the lawsuit she has filed. Why did she file a lawsuit? Well, According to her version of events, Harvard finance professor Faris Musa Sa'ah called her a whore in Arabic and grabbed her by the arm, bruising it as he tried to take the microphone, according to court papers. She was then followed out by audience members shouting at her. She filmed the incident and posted it on Facebook. It seems to be that what upset the Harvard club then was that she refused to take down the Facebook video, thus violating the sanctity of their Harvardness. And the board of trustees demanded she take it down. When she refused, they expelled her and she is now suing the Harvard Club. Now, the New York Post does not say if Vanessa Levine went to Harvard. And I know that the Yale Club, whose extremely good water pressure showers I once enjoyed as a young recent graduate (laughs) in New York, (laughs) I've never felt water pressure like the water pressure in the showers by the squash course. The only pressure you felt at the the Yale Club (laughs) was the the water pressure. At the Yale Club. But based on what I know about all of these clubs, they're not bursting at the seams with with members. They are like elite clubs everywhere. They've had to loosen the membership requirements a little bit to get members. So at Yale, at the Yale Club, for example, they're now much less rigorous about when you have to wear uh, a jacket to eat in the the grill room. And I believe they even combined with like the Dartmouth Club and the I Williams see. Club. And, and now look, <laughs> not the Dartmouth Club, surely. <laughs> so these clubs were inviting other clubs with other pedigrees, shall we say, to merge with them and use their spaces. And so you now might encounter people at the Yale Club who do not themselves have Yale diplomas. <gasps> I don't know if that's what's happened at Pass the Harvard the Club. smelling salt. So- <laughs> I am outraged. <laughs> so my question is, did Vanessa with 1S Levine even attend Harvard and Radcliffe Colleges? Or was she an interloper whose money they were taking, but whom they were happy to be rid of? And if not, are we interested in the opinions of such commoners? (laughs) I I, I could have researched the actual rules for Harvard Club membership, but I'd rather get the angry mail from Harvard alumni. Everything about this story is like, this hits a perfect sweet spot for me. It's like, Everything that I find stupid <laughs> about America, <laughs> about like a particular subsection of like life. First right. of all, really, why are you going to events with titles like the hundred year war? I'm like, there's so much good shit on Netflix. There's so right. many great books. <laughs> you know, there are nice people out there. Don't don't go to an event just to ask like an outrageous question. Number one, number two. Really, like the Harvard Club? I got to tell you, though. It's, That's where you go? The thing about the Harvard and Yale Clubs is they're right near Grand Central Station. And again, the Yale Club, the water pressure in the showers, Liel, it would flay the skin off your back. It would change everything. It would change. You've ne- It ruins every other shower ever. Only club you. I want to be a part of is the Kiddish Club. <laughs> you know where Vanessa Levine should have been? On the Upper West Side 20 years ago? Living the beautiful pre-9-11, sprightly, love-infused existence of Ed Norton, Ben Stiller, and Jenna Elfman in the movie Keeping the Faith. Now, you'll remember that a few weeks ago, you and Stephanie and I, we agreed we were going to have a film club. We were going to watch this movie, which is one of the great Jewy movies of all time. Uh, it's the story of two friends, a rabbi and a priest, Ben Stiller and Edward Norton, who uh, reconnect with an old friend from childhood who, who has grown up into this great beauty, played by Jenna Elfman, and uh, love triangular hijinks ensue. Revisiting this movie, Liel, Benzion, Shlomo, Yehoshua, O'Malley, Leibowitz, what did you think? It broke my heart. I was so profoundly sad. I arrived at the city 
shortly before the events depicted in in this year movie take place. And I, I really couldn't help but thinking how it captures a reality that is completely alien to the way we live today. People call each other on the phone. Then they have meetings in person. If something goes wrong and you want to talk about it in life, you don't tweet about it. You actually go to a friend's apartment and you sit there and you have all these lovely late night confessions, no Mm -hmm. pun intended. The Upper West Side is robust. There are no stores that are shuttered because of the internet. Uh, There's no kind of, uh, you know, existential fear and dread that seeped into the city after 9-11. It is just a testament to, to hope, to humanity, to connection, to the possibility of faith to transform lives. It seems like a document from another century. And in a sense, it really is. The fact that one of the running gags is how they mock Jenna Elfman because she carries a little cell phone around. Like that was the moment when right. cell phones were first becoming a thing. And I remember getting my first one thinking, you know, and I, I think I I told myself it was a financial decision. It was cheaper than having a landline. And I, I was doing some traveling for my graduate school work and it was going to let me keep in touch on the road. And, you know, I even remember the last phone number I ever learned because once you get cell phones right. and it records what's the, the point? you know, what's the point? It was, it was John Pitt, uh, partner at Williams and Connolly, former roommate of mine. I, I still know his phone number. No, I guess, I guess some years later I learned my wife's phone number and then my daughter's and that's it. And it really was a time where, yes, the whole premise of the movie is they all live near each other on the Upper West Side and therefore can get together to fight out all of these uh, dramas that their lives are playing out. And they have to do it. They have to cry on each other's shoulder and they have to. And when when Edward Norton gets upset by the, the turn things have taken, he goes to a bar. Even the fact that like he's drunk in the bar crying to the bartender. It looks like such an anachronism. Such an anachronism. See, the person who made this movie, this really is one of the greatest films of the last 30, 40 years. Yeah. The person who made this movie, I think, thought he was making a religious movie in as much as it was about these, you know, this relationship between the rabbi and the priest. I think what actually we end up taking from it vis-a-vis religion 20 years later is is the fact that for spirit to survive at all, you need precisely that. You need to be able to sit at the bar and talk to the bartender. You yep. need to sit on the couch with your friend and cry for hours. You need all these things that life, you know, post-internet simply makes, you know, if not impossible, then really unlikely. And really, like, I I felt post-human watching this movie. Realizing how much was lost in the last 20 years made me deeply depressed. And I don't think I'm just being kind of like, you know, middle-aged man being like, well, my day, hot dogs cost a quarter. Like, it really felt like a sea change. It's a terrific movie. And it was was a terrific movie You agree with me, middle-aged man, right? I completely agree with you. And But you know what? When I talk to my college students or when I talk to my kids about it, they they don't disagree. They they watch a movie like this and they know exactly what I'm talking about. And which is why, in fact, I'm meeting increasing numbers of undergraduates whom I work with who are off social media. I mean, they have their phones, but they're trying to like reclaim something of that analog existence. And finally, I'll just say it takes religion seriously. It's not reverent, but it's serious. And I think that's really cool. I would love to get Stuart Blumberg, who wrote this movie, on the show. He's made a few movies since. Uh, if anyone has a Stuart Blumberg connection, like uh, drop us a line. And meanwhile, J. Crew, your assignment is still, if you haven't yet, go rewatch Keeping the Faith and then send us a note about it. There's been a lot of Facebook chatter about it. We want your mail, unorthodoxatabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869.
Consumed by You is a scripted web series by and about Orthodox Jewish millennials trying to find love or at least lust uh, in the big city. It has been described as a Jewish version of Friends, which is exactly how you would sell it to my daughter, Rebecca, who's watched all Although of Friends honestly, twice. Yeah. But it, it is so much better. But it I love Friends. Has a that's soul. what I keep saying. I love Thank Friends. You. So I, to me, that's a high compliment. Anyway. <laughs> we'll take both. <laughs> they'll take whatever we give them. And this season, the second season, they move into some super contested territory as they introduce queer Orthodox characters. We are thrilled to welcome uh, from Soon by You, Danny Hoffman and Leah Gottfried. Thank you for coming on Unorthodox. Thank you are our Gentiles of, I mean, Jews of the week. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with this first episode of the new season. Tell us a story. The one we just released is the second episode of, of the second season. We've always surrounded our episodes around six characters, our Orthodox and live in New York City. And this time uh, for this episode, we meet one of our main characters, siblings, who we find out a little bit through the episode. Spoiler alert. Spo- oh, spoiler alert. Please pause the podcast and <laughs> watch the episode if you haven't right. yet, not Josh, yet done so. could you please play the spoiler alert music there? Thank you very much, Josh. Uh, We find out a little bit through the episode that this character's sibling is gay. And we meet him as well as a friend of his who is also a gay woman. And we learn a little bit about them, their experience, and these two organizations that we partnered with uh, to make this episode, JQY and Eshel, who are very involved in the uh, Jewish gay communities, queer communities. It's something we've been thinking about for a really long time. And we really wanted to do it in an authentic way. We recognize that it wasn't our experience. And much of this show so far has been from our experience and our lives. So it was really important to us to partner with these organizations in order to, you know, create a story that makes sense for them and is important for them to get across. Really just amplifying their voices is our goal. So I assume that once you started doing the show and getting really big, I know a lot of people who are really mega fans of the show, and I'm big fan of the show myself. I assume that the pressures of representation, right, began being a thing. I assume a lot of people came to you and said, hey, man, you know, it's really nice that you did this dating scene, lighthearted, et cetera, but it's time to talk about some of the more contentious issues. It's time to talk about LGBTQ, modern Orthodox people, et cetera. Did, that, did, it, did it happen this way? We actually got it in from all directions. Our characters very much mimic the way that Leia and I and the other producers and, and actors grew up, um, which is modern Orthodox. And we were, it was pointed out to us that that is a very narrow uh, representation of Jews in general, that we were kind of only showing our own experiences. And people were like, well, you can show more yeshivish experiences. Yeah, but that's, what arti- orthodox experiences. but that's what artists do exactly. often is right. they work from their own experiences. There's nothing wrong with that. I right. mean, I don't know that much, except that as a Jew journalist, I've learned a lot about it. But growing up, I knew nothing about modern orthodoxy. Like to, if you gave me a show that was just modern orthodoxy, that would be a world unto itself that I would never know. So why, I don't know, did, did you kind of feel like, but wait a second, we're doing a thing that actually is represented almost nowhere else in American culture. That was really what made me create the show is because I didn't see this representation anywhere else and it was my experience and I thought it was so interesting and so fascinating for other people to kind of get a look into this subculture and I think the purpose was to show this kind of niche group of people and they're not really shown anywhere else. It was it was very much inspired by the Israeli show Surgim which was about modern Orthodox Jews dating in Israel and like for me seeing that I felt like wow I had never seen this world portrayed before and we wanted to bring that to New York and and the States and explore that world. Yeah, I think that what people connected to were 
there's not this content about these other parts of Judaism, these other representational groups of Judaism. And they saw us and they said, well, that's close to who I am, but it's not exactly. Why don't you include some more people? And I think you're right. From our artistic expression, this is who the stories are about. Yeah. It's our experience, but they don't have, I guess, people doing that for their experience and they'd like us to do that for them as well. Or they should do that. But there's yeah. a kind of built-in challenge there, I think, because, you know, if you look at so much of the progression of American sitcoms in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, a lot of it has its own kind of grammar and it. it's fast in many cases. It's glib. It is often built around these minute misunderstandings and, and other kind of just, you know, ephemera. And here you are describing the lives of a community that by definition, to be too cute about it, answers to a higher calling, right? That has a different set of ideas that inspire and move it. So I'm interested in how that comes into play when you're writing the shows. I mean, I can feel it kind of in the background, but I wonder when you're writing these episodes, if you think about rather than just, okay, well, you know, the characters are going to do X and Y and Z and the interactions and the relationships are going to work in this way and it's going to be really, really funny. Oh, remembering all the while that, well, one of them's a rabbi. And they all have something that tethers them together that is more than just the friends paradigm of like, oh, we're young, attractive and happen to live in the same building. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Just because coming from a place of where we are and because we are similar to those characters in that way, it kind of just seeps into the work naturally because a lot of it is from our experiences and from the world around us that we see. But honestly, like we didn't go into it thinking about that so much. We just wanted to tell stories about modern Orthodox Jews and just really humanize them in a way where anybody watching can relate to what they're going through and can relate to the emotions and the desires and the loneliness and the isolation in certain ways. Um, and the fact that they're Orthodox Jews and the fact that they do, you know, sort of have this higher calling, as you said, just makes it more interesting. But that was never like the goal to kind of explain Orthodoxy or anything. That was just like who these characters are. I get are. that. But, but I, I still wonder, I mean, when you watch regular secular American television, is there a part of you that looks at it and says, my God, man, this culture is completely decimated? Yeah. Um, as a fan of the secular American television and a uh, prolific watcher. That's sort of what modern orthodoxy is. It's orthodox people who love secular who love television. Secular television. <laughs> yeah, that's, sort of, that's your that's role. It. That's yeah. the definition yeah. of that. Exactly right. And to be honest, that's the only reason, I think because we watch TV, that's the only reason that we're able to make our version sure. of that. I don't find myself thinking like, oh, there needs to be more Jewish value in these episodes. A lot of the drama comes from things that might not necessarily come up in orthodox Jewish dating. And that's what's right for that show. That's not what would be right for our show. I, I do come at it with the thought of incorporating Jewish values, but not like overtly and not in your face, but just naturally through who these characters are. And that I think to me is in general how I see myself as like a writer and a filmmaker and an Orthodox person who is writing TV and, and film and everything, just sort of naturally having those values seep into my work. Yes, it's for entertainment and entertainment's sake, but I also see a higher calling to all of that and really for God's sake and for the sake of bringing more light into the world through entertainment and through fun. I am astonished at how few shows have any meaningful depiction of any religiosity, mm. Jewish, right. Christian, yes. Muslim. Like yes. you can watch all of NBC, ABC and CBS and find almost nobody 
whoever says like, oh, I'll meet you after church. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't even exist in a a country that by some counts is like 40% evangelical Christian, right? It's not just a Jewish thing. It's that Hollywood really is determinedly, it is run by secularists. And I I mean, journalism as well. Media really is run by secularists. Do you feel resistance from the media community at all? I mean, as a filmmaker, you're like the only filmmaker you know, except the people you work on this show with, whoever goes to religious services of any kind, I bet. Well, I would challenge that actually. I think there are- You can't come on my podcast. (laughs) Too late. Okay. There are so many incredible filmmakers who are doing just that. And maybe they're not like fully, completely mainstream yet, but they're out there. And so many of my mentors and idols and people that I look up to are religious filmmakers who are creating powerful work. And people want to see that. And people want to see that more. And that's something that I want to change and I want to bring more of, not just with this work, but with other work also. Because like you said, there are so many people whose experiences are not being represented and who are kind of just like they don't exist in the world of of film and TV. And I think especially now with the industry kind of being more open to diverse voices, I think it's it's a good time to kind of slip in and change that. Right, which is why my, my favorite scene in, in this episode we've been talking about is trying to arrange the mincha davening on a boat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fantastic. But let me ask you this on, on a very personal note. You've started the show some years ago, right? How many years? Four or five, Four or five years, years, ago. years ago. You were all in different places in your lives back then. We've had you on, on the show earlier and, and some things might have happened to some Lots. of you. That, things that, happen to that uh, maybe change your perspective? Tell us uh, about your lives since this sure. started. No, yeah, our, our lives have changed definitely since we started. I was already married when we started doing the show, but I am now a father, um, which is a definitely a big, massive change right, in tough. my life. And I'll let you talk to your changes. Yes, yeah, so many things happened. I think what you're referring to is probably that I did get married a couple months ago. Indeed, Mazel tov Which is that. wonderful and a beautiful part of my life. Um, was there a specific question about that? <laughs> yeah. does, well, the question is twofold. First of all, I mean, there's a brand here, right? The show is called Soon By You. Mm. The, the whole thing is around this, oh, searching for love, first of all. And second of all, I also assume that as artists, you are now in kind of different places and, and you maybe want to tell different stories and you maybe have different emotional valences that, that you want to bring to your work. Do you think about that? Because you're, you're not the young upstarts that you were four years ago. You're now established celebrities with <laughs> Indeed we families are. And, and fan bases. We are How does that very change? selectively celebrities and very selective <laughs> places. New York happens to be right, one like of the places if where If you go to a kiddish or a mod aura, you're mobbed. Like there yeah, must be some places we have in to, town. You know, we're the best kind of celebrity where you right? have to bring that's security like, oh my we're, god yeah we're like kiddish celebrities right, right? But that's the only place where we're celebrities <laughs> yeah well does I that think, shape things um it might be it might be different for the both of us i can say now that i'm uh now i have a daughter and you know i'm starting to think about the world that she's going to be growing up in and uh the religious circles that she's going to be growing up in and b- because of that and also because of these voices who have spoken to us about you know making sure that people are represented in the show i now see our show as a an opportunity to kind of try to represent those less represented voices. Like we're talking about the LGBTQ representation in our current, our most recent episode. And it's something that is important to us because it's important to the LGBTQ community, but it's also because there is this group of people who who are not necessarily accepted uh, in many circles of orthodoxy. And that has ramifications on their personal lives and it's it's very very difficult we have the show and it's an opportunity to kind of say like here we are as orthodox jews and that is not what orthodox judaism is to everybody who is orthodox and jewish orthodox judaism does not necessarily mean that we are not going to 
accept or include people who don't live their lives like the rest of the Orthodox community necessarily. And I think that's an important thing that we can do through our show for the community and also for the future, perhaps, of, of young Orthodox Jews. Although we were talking a little bit earlier about you hear it from the left and the right, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, I mean, you're also getting people from communities to the right of yours, religiously speaking, yeshivish communities, more Haredi communities, more conservative, modern Orthodox communities who probably are saying, like, what are you doing with this show where people kiss before marriage and what? Well, and the, now you're putting gay people kiss, on it? But we do yeah. have queer characters. But you have queer yeah. characters, yeah. Right? Yeah. right? And was there never, I thought there was, in my mind, Maybe I'm conflating with Shrugi because I want where there is sometimes <laughs> sure. I, maybe yeah, there have our, been epi- there have been characters who have but anyway. our characters have been strictly Shomernigia Shomernigia and which is not the case for every modern Orthodox sure, human, human I know so was that also a decision that was made to yes. like as a yes. re- to represent a certain kind of religiosity it was mm-hmm. and people always ask the question like will they well when will they when will they hold hands <laughs> exactly when they uh, get married <laughs> yeah let me ask you this uh, so it seems to me that the last four years have been a very difficult time in as much as the political schisms that have affected all of us also kind of at least drove this community to feel much more in opposition as the kind of bastion of, say, conservative values, if not outright Trump-supporting, then at least Trump-curious, versus the kind of more secular or more liberal rest of the American Jewish community that has been moving further and further to the left from it. Do you, First of all, do you feel any of this in your lives? And second of all, does that inform how you think about a show like yours. Well, I can I can definitely say that there's people within my community that I encounter on a regular basis who are very strongly in, in both camps, who are very strongly pro-Trump and very conservative and also very strongly anti-Trump and very liberal. Those are all part of the Orthodox community that I'm a part of. As far as our show is concerned, I think we've been very intentional about not being political. I mean, it does feel like a very divisive time, though. Um, like, I feel it in my life. I have family members who are more of the in the right wing community and and friends who are you know more liberal and I'm sort of interacting with all of them and it, and it does feel like I can I can feel the tension and I can feel a lot of opposition just in the world in our world in general um, and it's kind of disheartening at, at times but with the show you know I think we're really just we keep coming back to like what do we feel is important and not sort of seeing ourselves as politically anywhere but just more from like an artistic place like what is important for us to explore about this community what voices are important to be amplified something that i also think has been important for our show is that this is an opportunity especially especially if we're introducing orthodox jewry to people who might not be uh familiar with it or at least our our form of orthodox jewry it's an opportunity to bring people together who might not necessarily have thought you know that they have something in common uh, We've gotten comments from people about how, you know, they didn't know anything about Jews before, but now they see how much more similar they are to Mm -hmm. to themselves than they thought. And uh, that's an opportunity to bring people together. And we certainly don't want to do anything that's going to drive people apart. Speaking of bringing people together, this is our Valentine's Day episode. Mm -hmm. It's a big Talmudic holiday that is celebrated (laughs) throughout the yeshivish world. Give Give us some wisdom from the Soon Bayou universe. about finding and keeping love in the 21st century. Love yourself first. I think that's where it starts. Yeah, I'm I'm all about like self-love and going on dates with yourself and if you're, <laughs> if you're, Mark, Mark and I do it all the time. Right. She mentioned she was married. She didn't say it was to another person. Right. <laughs> Who picks up the tab on a oh, date with God. yourself? Rabbi. 
Rabbi. Um, well, I, it's uh, kind of jumping off of, of what you started, but I think that finding what you are excited about and finding what you're passionate about and what makes you happy uh, is going to be very valuable in finding someone who you're going to be able to be that person with. Well, we're excited about Soon by You. Thank Woo. you so much for joining us. Thank Soon you. For having us. Available on a web browser near you. That's right. YouTube.com. <laughs> YouTube.com. Danny Hoffman and Leah Gottfried. Thank you for being our Jews of the so Week. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. J. Crew, if you heard our apology episode for the Jewish year 5779, you will surely remember Hal Karp. He told a story about repairing his relationship with his brother. He was one of our favorite guests, and he got in touch with us and said that he had some news that he wanted to update us on. So we were excited to have him at our Cincinnati live show where he told us this story. Our super fans and many longtime listeners, or people who have just been with us for even just a year, if you've been through with us through a Yom Kippur, uh, in the fall, you've heard that what we do for Yom Kippur is our annual apology episode. And that's because Yom Kippur is not just a time for atoning with God, but also for apologizing to other human beings. Two years ago on the apology episode, we invited a gentleman who is a, a, a writer and storyteller, lives down in Texas, 
to um, tell a story of atoning with people whom he felt he had wronged. Uh, it was a wonderful story, got a lot of tremendous feedback, and then we didn't hear from him for a while, but we were, we were proud of that episode. And then we heard from him a couple months ago, and it turns out that the story only got more interesting. So, to talk about that, please welcome Hal Karp. So, um, Hal, welcome. Welcome to the show for the second time. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about the story that you told us. Bring people up to speed if they didn't hear that story. My original story was about in 1990, I was in Dallas and living with my brother. And I was also secretly, he did not know this, a full-blown alcoholic and drug addict. And he had invited me to become his roommate because we were, were going to be like two hip and cool Jewish guys living together, except that I was not hip and cool. I was addicted. And I took advantage of that situation every chance I got. I never once paid him rent and lost every job I had within weeks and it just got really bad really fast. And at one point, I had manipulated a situation to actually have him arrested and sent to jail instead of me, and he went to jail. And he did not do anything wrong. I, I actually obviously did the wrong thing. My family then obviously excommunicated me. My addiction got worse. I committed a variety of criminal acts and uh, got sober and always wondered, how do you make amends for that? in the 12-step program that I was in, I was told that if you ask God to show you a way, they'll show you a way, like a door will open. And my brother, after I was sober a while, my family realized I was serious about being sober. He needed to have surgery, and my family, all, everybody else was out of town, and he asked me if I would come stay with him and take him to the hospital for surgery and pick him up and then take care of him. So I got to basically, for one week, be the, the roommate that I never was, and I got to fix it. You told that story at beautifully greater length on our show, and people should go back and listen to that, that episode from 2018. And then you heard from somebody. I did. So there was a girlfriend that I had dated back in 1993. She was a, a wonderful girl. We had a great connection, except I was pretending to be sober. I would actually go to 12-step meetings and like stay sober a couple of weeks, a couple of months, but I was lying about really being sober. And in order to take care of herself, she broke up with me. And I was so angry about that because when you're a drug addict, you're fucking angry all the time. It's everybody's fault except yours. And I stole her identity and got several credit cards in her name and ran those up. Of course, I had a plan, like, I'll pay them and nobody will know, and, but that didn't really work out very well. I got a phone call from her mother and her, and they had found out. At the time, she was actually teaching English in Costa Rica. And I thought, she'll never find out she's in Costa Rica. This was my plan. By the time she gets back, I'll win the lottery and, <laughs> and, and pay back these cards. I, I really had like some insane plan like that. So I remember after she found out, this is August 3rd, 1994, she had called me and, uh, and said, why would you do this to me? And I remember when we hung up, I remember thinking like, how could I do this to somebody that I really loved as deeply as I loved her? Her name's Irene. I just remember thinking, how did I get here? you know, and that I was probably going to go to prison 
that was the night that I actually got down and, and prayed to God for the first time for real. I really said, God, if you're there, I need help. And the next day was the first day of my sobriety. Oh, you guys so, don't know what's coming. So, <laughs> You're clapping so, so now. The, so the story, there was the piece in there about the felonies. You know, when you get sober, you know, the first thing you want to do is like, I want to call her. I want to call her, you know. And your, your people that help you in sobriety tell you your way to make amends to her is you're never going to bother her again. You know, like she knows how sorry your ass there's is. There's people you apologize to and there's people who... There are people that your way to apologize to them is to never bother them ever again. So I got a Facebook message from her and she had heard the story on the podcast. And she said, I heard the story. It brought back some memories. I was glad to hear that you are doing well and healthy. I'm divorced. I'm living in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and um, I hope you're doing well. I wrote her back and said, thanks for getting in touch. And, and as I was typing that, I realized one of the things they tell you when you're like, I want to talk to her, I want to talk to her. And they're like, you're never going to talk to her. Is if you're supposed to talk to her one day, if you're supposed to make amends, God will open that door. Can we bring her up now? Where's Irene? Irene, will you come on up? And Josh will even get you a chair. All right. Irene, you sit here. Yeah, come I'll close. I'll sit on the outside. Thank you, Irene, for joining us all the way from Arkansas. Okay. So, hi. <laughs> from your end, is this on? Yes. You're a fan of unorthodox, <laughs> I gather. Or you actually, least... you know what? I have. I I cannot tell a lie. Okay. Um, I I I am now a fan of unorthodox. Um, at the time, I had this. Hal had always been the love of my life, and was truly heartbroken by everything that happened. Um, and when. An, I was in a weird spot every now and then. I would just Google his name or Facebook, you know, like look him up on Facebook. I mean, no, not like stalk, but like, you know, every five years or so. And That's I, funny because I actually stalk my exes on Facebook. That's like, <laughs> I, 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 I full on just, well, it's Google, but I just Google them. I mean, like, no I mean, shame here. I told Hal the story about like when my marriage was really, really bad. There was one year I actually drove by his family's house for Thanksgiving and just was like, longing for like we used to go over to his family's house for Sunday dinner and it was just it was one of the sweet memories that I had right and my marriage was falling apart and I just I mean I remember like going to therapy and I'm like what's wrong with me <laughs> I'm like driving by my ex-boyfriend's house like you know and he like did this horrible thing to me and whatever so last September ish I had one of those Facebook moments and he had just posted a link to the podcast so I'm like interesting so I'll click on the link and, you know and then I listened to the story and I was kind of blown away by how gentle and how human his story was and and obviously there was a reference to what he had done to me and so yeah I did I mean I with 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 no intention other than to reach out and say, I, I'm, I listened to your story. I'm glad you're healthy. I hope you're happy. That was it, right? I'm guessing you didn't tell your best girlfriends that you did this. Oh, no, no. <laughs> like, the guy who stole your identity, the, <laughs> right? They, I mean, actually, it's, it's amazing how much grace your friends have when, when they hear, like, the whole story. But we definitely 
Well, that's kind of fast forward. Let's fa- let's let's so rewind. Know. Okay. I mean, which one of you wants to take it from there? Why don't you tell us what happened then? So they say if you're supposed to do this, God will open the door. So I remember thinking in that very moment, this is it. This is the chance to make amends to Irene. The money that I had I paid the bank back when I got sober, I ended up not going to prison, which was a whole other God story. <laughs> but I had never made amends for stealing her identity and for harming her, violating her trust, stealing her peace of mind. So I messaged her back and said, you know, if you're ever in Dallas, let me know. We could meet for coffee and I can give you the apology that you're long overdue to have. She wrote back and said, I would welcome that. That would be a gift that I never thought I would get in this lifetime. Just because, you know, when you have the opportunity to get closure on something that has haunted you for so long, it, it was, I was that. It was like I was, it was seeking closure, right? And so you traveled to Dallas. Well, so I actually used to live in, I mean, I lived in and out of Dallas for over 20 years and um, had relocated to Arkansas in 2015 and traveled back and forth to Dallas on a regular basis. My kids have friends there and my company has an office there and so my clients are there. So anyway, there was a trip that was going to happen and then it didn't happen. Anyway, we wound up meeting for coffee at the end of November last year. A year ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I had to do a couple of conference calls before we met. And uh, so I'm already sitting at this place. What he had picked, by the way, it was quite ironic. He picked a place called, I mean, if those of you who know Dallas, there's a place called Cafe Brazil. It's right off the highway. And we used to go there. And so when he suggested like a place to meet and he suggested that, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Excuse me. I'm sorry. No, I, the only reason I suggested it was because she she said I had conference calls to to do and they have Wi-Fi. I was like, I was like, could there be any more irony in this reconnect than freaking Cafe Brazil? I'm like, okay, whatever, no problem. I will meet you there, right? So I'm on a call. He walks in. He just kind of saunters in. I'm speechless because I had a lot going on in my life. One of my kids was at the end of a rough patch and I was dealing with that and dealing with work and being a single parent and all of this, these things and in walks this person that I'm telling you like the memory of standing in the street in front of his parents' house and him putting my hand on his heart and telling me about the, the still small voice, you know, like this man walks in and like everything disappears. Right. And I'm on a conference call for work and I'm like, okay, keep your head, you know, and we just, started talking and kind of we just got caught up and the end we like we walked out and I said so I'm kind of hugger can I give you a hug I mean it was like nothing no like nothing right and he gave me this hug that was like was everything I don't know how to explain it it's just I melted and I got in my car and I started to cry by that time he had pulled out of the parking lot and I sent him a message and I said thanks for seeing me um it it means everything. And, and then when I left Dallas that Sunday night, I just, I sent, sent him a thanks again message. And from the day we met for coffee, I don't think there's been a single day where we haven't talked FaceTime. So my birthday is December 6th, right? So 12 plus six is high. 18. 18. And um, he said to me in this text, he said, you said you had an upcoming birthday. And I always remembered your birthday because 12 plus 12, 6, 6 is 18, 18 and 18 is high. I can't tell you the number of times between last year and today that this man has just 
melted my heart and brought me to tears. And yesterday he asked me to marry him. <laughs> so, Mazel Tov. Thank you. Um, I said yes. You said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I got this email from Hal a couple months ago. I don't, think, I don't know if you knew you guys were going to get married then, but you were just writing to say, thought you'd like to know that some good came out of, I mean, lots of good came out of because people were so moved by your story. Yeah, I think what's amazing is the spiritual aspect to the story was that I, in my spiritual journey with God, is that I was honored to tell this apology story on this podcast, which I love. And then, you know, I, I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity. This is so great to find out that, oh, it leads, it's going to lead to another apology, you know. And, and honestly, when, when that was all I thought was going to happen, you know. Um, and, then, um, and, then, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I walked through that door because I'm willing to make that amends. And then that led to finding um, love forever which is, you know, Irene, if, if there's a definition of Beshert, it's Irene. <laughs> Sorry. That's so great. And so you're welcome, is what we're saying. So thank you. So listen. Thank you, guys. Yes, we owe it all to so you. Th- no, 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 no. You, you, this means we have to throw the that's wedding. Right. <laughs> all we require is an invitation. So to your small, intimate gathering, whatever it is. Um, anyways, Can I just say one more thing? Please. Forgiveness is a gift, right? And it's a choice. And I think that we had both, in the years in between not seeing each other, done so much work on ourselves that we were in a place where that could happen. And not only that, but my mother, who I was petrified, like of all people to tell, I was petrified <laughs> to tell my mother. And they now have the sweetest relationship. It's that this is has been like the gift that keeps on giving, and I on, honestly have to pinch myself about how much good there is in my life right now. So, so. Mazel Tov, Helen Irene. Mailbox. Liel, I have a question for you. Whatever happened to the days when all of our listeners were mad at you? I miss the days when I was the good guy. It's a refreshing change. And all of it's a sudden, sign of the end times when I am the kind of unifying figure. <laughs> these days, I'm the one getting it the in the mailbox. The bearded maniac is beloved by all. You're beloved the, by uh, all. And the I'm... father of five from New Haven is oh the my. source of everyone's shit list. A few weeks back, we ran that interview with anti-Zionist editor and writer Carolyn Karsher. We got a lot of angry email from that. And we were going to play some of it. But then I got even angrier email for my interview last week, which I thought was, you know, a little bit of a sweet nothing burger. I thought it was just a genial sit down with uh, moderate evangelical Mark Galley, former editor of Christianity Today. And it turns out, no, everyone was mad at me for that, too. Also, as it happened, I got some facts wrong about reform and conservative conversions. I'm just getting everything wrong. I'm apparently the apox on the world of Jewish podcasting. Well, aren't uh, we fortunate to have such wonderful <laughs> listeners who could write in and educate us? That's right. So, so what 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 were we educated on this week, Mark? Okay, my friend Rabbi Michael Farberman from Greater New Haven, from Temple Emmanuel, wrote, Dear Mark, you got it wrong. The state of Israel accepts 
non-Orthodox converts under the law of return. It allows them to make aliyah. They get to Israel. They're registered as Jewish citizens, and it affords them all the civic rights. The problem with the Israeli system is while the state of Israel recognizes the status of these converts, marriages for Jews are under the auspices of the chief rabbinate, which, of course, not only does not recognize their conversions, but also no longer recognizes certain orthodox conversions performed outside the state of Israel by certain rabbis. Yours truly, Rabbi Michael Farman, Temple Emmanuel. Okay, Rabbi Michael, thank you for correcting me. That is true. You don't need an orthodox conversion to make aliyah. But when you move there, you might have trouble getting a rabbi to do your wedding. I got that wrong. And many members of the rabbinate reached out to correct me. Rabbi Michael, thank you for the gentle correction. Many of the corrections were not so gentle. For example, dear Mark, Stephanie, and Liel, I want to add to the chorus of listeners who were deeply disappointed by Mark's interview with Mark Galley. I'm glad Unorthodox makes an effort to bring in disparate voices. I think Liel's episode with Jay Michelson was a fantastic example of this kind of thing. My issue with Mark Galley was not his opinions as such. I was shocked that Mark Oppenheimer did not seem put off by Mark Galley bemoaning the lack of seriousness and respect in media portrayals of evangelicals, only minutes later to declare, okay, I get it, there are gay people in the world. What could be less serious or respectful from Galley? Worst of all was Mark Oppenheimer giving Mark Galley the space to equate same-sex marriage with Nazism with no pushback. All the best, Ryan Minster. Now, Ryan is referring to Galley discussing the evangelical Christian baker who refused to bake a cake famously for a gay couple, a wedding cake. And Galley said something to the effect of, look, we wouldn't ask Jews to bake a cake for Nazis. And this analogy was picked up on by, what, a couple dozen listeners. I mean, it was in the Facebook group. It was mail that we got. And a lot of people seemed very angry that I didn't, quote, push back. And I want to say a couple things about this, if I may. The first is that when I interview people, I usually go in with a big fund of sympathy of giving them the benefit of the doubt. Um, now, sometimes I want to mix it up and engage with them. The Carolyn Karsher interview, for example, was one where I thought the most interesting stuff was going to come if I pushed back and really argued with her, right? But that was partly because we're both Jews and we share some of the same conceptions, like our critique of Israel, right? With Mark Galley, who's an evangelical Christian, uh, who's often voted for conservative politicians, I don't agree with him on a lot. And so actually... Paradoxically, I give those interview subjects more space to say what they want because I'm not going to change his mind on anything. So I tend to sit back and just figure if I give him space to say the things he believes, we will all learn something more. Whereas if I stop him and push back and quarrel, that what happens is the subject will often shut down and feel like, oh, here's another hostile interviewer from the liberal media. And it actually will end up being a worse interview in which we will learn less. We have no dearth of places to go witness shout fests between people right. trying to make points, right? right? Now, I think a lot of our listeners actually had another thought in mind, which was not that I could have changed Mark Alley's view, but they felt that I, as an ally to queer people, especially queer Jews, owed it to them to be an upstanding bystander, that when somebody said something that seemed to draw an analogy between gay people and Nazis, although I want to be fair, I think that Mark Alley just chose his words poorly. I don't think he actually thinks right. gay people are like Nazis. I think that's a charitable... He was talking about think, offensive sentiments in general and, right. and chose a bad example. But right. listening to the show, I did not actually think yes. that he equated one with the other. But I understand how listeners would have heard that and really bridled and recoiled and how it would have felt to them. And so their question is, why didn't you stand up for us? And I hear that. And I think there are conflicting things there. Um, I think there are conflicting impulses there if I have to inspect who I was being at that time. One is, yes, I do have a world of listeners who might have asked me to say something. But the other is, again, 
I had invited Mark Galley on the show, right? Mark Galley didn't pitch us this. He didn't have a publicist say, oh, can we come on Unorthodox? We invited him here as our guest whom we wanted to learn from and and better understand the evangelical mindset. And remember, he came on as somebody who had already taken enormous heat for criticizing President Trump. So he was already very embattled. And again, I think that I defaulted to the sense that I was the host. And frankly, there are times when it's not profitable to stop people and push back against them. That might not be satisfying to some of our listeners. I understand that. But I think we all make those decisions on the fly a lot. And I trust that our listeners know that I don't think that the analogy was perfect. I don't think that baking a cake for a gay couple, which is something I would do, although I bake poorly. Uh, is it all? Yeah, why would a gay couple want? Or <laughs> they any, wouldn't want my or a cake. Straight couple want a cake by you. Nobody would want a cake by me. I think our listeners know where I stand on that. And we had had someone on the show who chose an analogy that I would never have chosen. But you know what? He was our guest, and the most important thing to me was let's have an interview where he feels the freest to share who he is because we don't hear from a lot of evangelical Christians and we can learn something. And some of our listeners wrote in and were appreciative of that. So we're always grateful for all the feedback. Hallelujah. You may remember that in last week's News of the Jews, we talked about the uh, hate crime in which somebody threw a piece of pork at a conservative synagogue. And I joked that the people at a conservative synagogue or reformed temple would take the piece of pork inside, fry it up good <laughs> and eat it because they largely don't keep kosher. Now, one letter writer was very angry and said, this is yet another case of you demeaning reform and conservative Judaism, to which I respond, hey, pal, I'm on the board of my conservative synagogue. The former president of I am, the conservative I am shul. like, you know, I know conservative Judaism. And I know that a lot of my fellow congregants eat pork and a lot of people in the conservative movement eat pork. And I was having some fun at the expense of a movement that I proudly belong to, whose summer camps I send my daughter to, whose day school I send a different daughter to. And the fact is, a lot of these fellow conservative Jews eat whose, pork. Whose motto you have tattooed on your shoulder. That's right. Uh, I am in minyanim whose army with them. Served in. I love them. Uh, I happen to be a vegetarian and I don't eat pork. Uh, I'm a you, vegetarian. You fellowship with them. Right. Fellowship with them. I do Bible. I do Wednesday night Bible study with them. Uh, I happen to be a vegetarian who even when I cheat uh, and eat meat, I don't eat pork. But you know what? That's me. Lots of my fellow conservative Jews eat pork and I was having some fun at my movement's expense. We got this letter from a listener who totally got it. He writes... My father was a kosher butcher in Cleveland for more than 30 years. Well, Mark's observation that many conservative Jews eat pork but won't admit it was just as true 30 years ago as it is now. Many years after his death, I discovered that after closing his shop at around 4 p.m. on Fridays, my dear sweet dad would go to Harvey's, a rib joint about five storefronts down from his butcher shop, and chow down on pork ribs at a table set up in the back room where nobody would see him. It made me laugh and remember him with even more fondness to learn of his taste for back ribs when it took me until the age of 16 to work up the courage to take my first illicit taste of bacon. Have a great day, all. Richard Silverman. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Silverman, you remind me, it was at the first episode of um, Six Feet Under, the first episode of The Dad Dies, and they discover that he has a private apartment where he's gone to just like sit and smoke pot. They discover he has like a weed lair <laughs> where he escapes his family of crazy kids and crazy wife and goes to smoke. You discovered that your dad had a special pork room at Harvey's. That is awesome. Um, yes. A, a trafe cave, if you will. A trafe cave. Hypocrisy is human and God loves us anyway. Let's not call it hypocrisy. It's complexity. Complexity is human. Call us 914-570-4869 or write to us or send us a voice memo unorthodox at tabletmag.com.
You know, sometimes we uh, we do stuff apart. Stephanie and Liel went to Sutton Place Synagogue a few months ago and met cantorial student Jacob Sandler at the evening services there. I didn't meet him then, but they said, it's okay. We got to bring this guy in studio. And so we did. Have a listen. We are here with Jacob Sandler. He's a cantorial student at JTS. We met him during our visit to the Sutton Place Synagogue in Manhattan. He, too, was visiting there that night, and we knew we had to get him on this show. Welcome. Hi. Thanks. It's great to be here. We have questions for you. So Stephanie and I were sitting in the pews, and we saw you do an incredible thing. We saw you get up in front of a room of complete strangers and lead them in a song they had never heard. And you did this like really helpful thing with your hands. Like you say, ha, ha, ha. And then you go, ha, ha, ha. And you seem to be really into it. And to me, I cannot think of a single human interaction that is more mortifying than teaching strangers to sing. Tell us, how does that feel, that moment? Well, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite things to do is teach people how to sing because singing gives me such joy and I like to give back and all that sort of nicety stuff. But also uh, I got my degree in music education before I started cantorial school. And so I need to believe that everyone can do it uh, or I'd be out of a job. You were that kid growing up. You're the, you're the singing kid. Yeah, I mean, more or less. In I high started on piano and started singing, and I wasn't even that good really until like junior year of high school. Um, but no one told me, so it was okay. <laughs> And yeah, I, you know, getting up in front of a group of people, I don't know what they know. I assume they know like the standard Jewy tunes that everybody knows, which are mostly Karl Bach and like Debbie Friedman. And then I come in and I'm like, they probably don't know this one, but I like this one and I want them to see something new. That was what we had discussed before I got there was like, we want to show them what else is out there. So like, come and take us out of our comfort zone. So I'm like, great. Okay. And then what I'll do is I'll use my hands to conduct the melody line so that they can sort of see directionally like it's getting higher, both in space and in, you know, pitch. And now it's getting lower. It's uh, it's almost like Bobby McFerrin where he would like jump across <laughs> the stage and he'd be like, this is the note here. And then he'd jump over here and it would be over this note and like, dum, bum, 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 whatever he would do. And I'm doing the same thing with my hands, you know, dum, ba da dum, ba da da dum, you know, and, and that, that sort of thing. Can we back up a second? I always love hearing about clergy journeys, right? So you, where are you from? Sure. What did you think you were going to do when you were five years old, 10 and years old? And when did you make the decision from like just music to cantorial music. Juzik. Yeah. Juzik. Um, amazing. Well, I started, I grew up in Rockland County, New York. And so I was sort of Jewish by osmosis. You know, my 7-Eleven had kosher food. And yet I went to public school and did my thing. The journey like career-wise was like in sixth grade, kids said, you should be a rabbi because I was the only one in Hebrew school that thought to read the Hebrew ahead and therefore <laughs> seemed like I knew what I was doing. But I didn't want to do that then or now. And then in like ninth grade, I realized I really wanted to give back to those things which really shaped my childhood. And that's how I knew I wanted to be a cartoonist. Um, <laughs> but that didn't really pan out either because I think it was around junior year when I took a flash animation course in high school because I had a cool high school. And I also took music theory and animation was like really, really tedious and exhausting and I only did it in school. And then, I like music theory, which is like so fun. Which like, ex well, you know, <laughs> yeah. So music theory, I would like go home and I was playing piano and singing in the shower and like analyzing Bach counterpoint for fun. And I was like, maybe this is the direction I should go since I'm doing it anyway. So why in Shul? Well, so that's a great question too. I, I grew up at Camp Ramah in the Berkshires. That's the Camp Ramah my daughter wouldn't go to. Well, she's she's New England, so you know. Oh, yeah, okay. There's, 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 I was going to say, is it because of our 
There's stuff going on there. There no, is no, stuff no, going on there. Rivals. We have a reputation. As we well do. We well, you know, it's the New York metropolitan area, kids. Yeah. So you've got Yo, your Westchester and your Long Island and your city. Double trouble. Apparently, places. you guys bring two phones, the one that they confiscate and then the secret one you still have. <laughs> the right. the No, no, no. It's an iPhone touch. It doesn't have cellular. Yeah, that's why I can hear you calling your mom on Shabbos in the bathroom. Like, none of that's okay. Um, I started as a counselor. And then when I was in school to be a music teacher, which was like a music profession that might pay me, little known fact, music teachers get paid. So I justified going back to camp summer after summer by being on music staff. So it was like direct experience in air quotes, like with almost like an internship. So I didn't have to get a real job because this was my real job. And by doing that, they would send me to different like professional development things with their budget. So I went to Hava Nashira first, which was is actually a URJ reform song leading conference that was started by Debbie Friedman and Jeff Klepper and people like that. And I remember leaving the first year I was there on the bus and I'm like, man, there's just not enough Jews in music school. There's not enough music at Jewish camp. Like, where can I go to get this kind of like excellent musical Jewish experience? And my friend goes, I don't know, cantorial school? And I was like, <laughs> Okay. Ding, well, ding, ding, think ding, about ding, that. What does your family say when you're like, okay, I'm going in. Cantorial school. It's for me. Not taking the MCATs again, mom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My sister is in uh, getting an MD, PhD, so, and her name is Razel. So she got the Jewish name, and actually, I guess the Jewish career in, in its own right. right. <laughs> the and real Jewish career. <laughs> she's she's going to be the doctor in the family, so I, that takes the pressure as the middle child. I don't have to be the oldest and the most whatever, but they're actually quite proud. It's, it's really sweet to see. They're like, it's amazing. I come back from like different gigs, and I tell them how much I made for like a Shabbos or this and that, and they're like, Wow, that's actually pretty good. And what are you even doing? What, you're just like leading the prayers? <laughs> you did that for free for your bar mitzvah. I'm like, yeah, I get paid more to do a little bit less because they don't actually make me read Torah at my internship. That so should be the, the motto of cantorial school. Get paid more to do a little bit less. And, and this is actually, yes, you're in cantorial school, but I think you're being on this podcast is a big deal to your family, right? Yeah, well, my mom listens to this podcast and her name is Hani Sandler. Shout out to Hani Sandler. Hani. Hello. All right, so it's now time to make Hani proud. It's it is really now exciting. time yeah. for you to lead us in song. Oh, I love when oh we do this. Oh, Are you ready? Are you ready? It's... But you have to do the hand thing. How, of course. Have you done your warm-ups today? No, um, but I will in a moment. Um, great. What? Well, so I get to pick the song? Could Introduce you, wait, the could, song. Could I, I love learning new tunes to Adon Alam. So if you want to do an Adon Alam, that's great. Do you want to do the traditional Adon Alam to the Backstreet Boys? Yes. Um, yes. Yes. We could definitely do that. Yes, that's what we want to do. I definitely Are you a millennial? Are you after a millennium? I was He's born Gen in '94, so yeah, the Backstreet Boys for him is like the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. No, stop! I'm, I'm, I remember the Backstreet Boys. I used to dance around on the couch in my living room. Okay, I like this a lot. So, yes. Yeah, I, it was the cutest thing when this kid came up to me, like, "No, you have to do the traditional Adon Olam." And I'm like, "Which one's that?" And she goes, "He goes, goes Adon Olam, Adon Olam, my share, my lach, b'terem ko, b'terem ko yitzir, the traditional, nasa, just like ten oh my years. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> what? It's, it's the best. And the traditional <laughs> one. So yeah, and like right, and so I'm sitting here, and I'm like, this religion's gonna be just fine. <laughs> We're doing great. We're doing great. There's a lot going on. There's dynamically like, there. The but do you know the song? Right, you're familiar uh, with the. Oh, I was like, Don Alam. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Are you seriously asking Mark Oppenheimer? Is familiar with the Uber of the Backstreet Boys? I am. I'm really serious. It's the president of the night. <laughs> so tell us what song this is set to. Well, it's a Backstreet Boys song, I Want It That Way, which is a classic tune about uh, love and I think maybe even heartbreak. You know, it ain't nothing but a heartache, really. Mm -hmm. Tell me why it ain't nothing but a mistake. 
So I'm just gonna do like the regular part, and you guys be the you know. If I'm gonna do the tell me why's, you're well, gonna lead do us. Lead us. In well, some. I will. I will. So I'm I'm gonna like gesture to me when it's like my turn, um, and it's often my turn. I'm gonna gesture to you guys when it's your turn. So I don't know, Lam. I don't know, Lam. I share my love. You gotta know the part. I've been terrim cold. Been terrim cold. You see me rap. Leet nasa. Leet nasa bechev so cold. Azai melech shimoni crowd. So if you heard, they like almost, they sort of like just started to come in right in like the middle of that last line. And that was while I was gesturing like with sort of a rotating hands and elbows. Like, no, all together, come together. That sort of motion. Which is a great song leading tool for Kulam Beyachad, all together now. We sing together. It is very good. So that's sort of the, uh, the thing. Oh my that God, we that was do. amazing. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. Jacob yeah. Sandler, thank, thank you. you for being with us. Well, thanks and for having me. And thanks Hani to Hani. Thank you for sending him along. And you're welcome for putting on a show your mom listened to. Yeah, wasn't that fun? <laughs> Liel, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have an amazing mazel tov. So you may remember former unorthodox guest and friend of the show, Rabbi Dr. Stu Halpern yeah. of Yeshiva University fame. Indeed. I learned earlier in the week, yeah. Rabbi Stu had, for the first time ever in his life- A piece of bacon. Even more shocking than that, tried hummus. Rabbi Stu had gone through 30-odd years and several children. He was a hummus virgin. And thousands of Shabbat meals without ever once tasting the delectable, delicious nectar of life that is hummus. How is that even possible? I don't know, but Rabbi, Rabbi Stu, Stu, my friend, welcome to the club. Rabbi Stu, you are now a Jew. <laughs> welcome to the club. Uh, we have a Mazel Tov that came in over the listener line. We want to wish a huge, hearty, big-throated, jolly Mazel Tov to our fans Cantor Emma and Rabbi Adam Lutz on the birth of their first baby. Ruby Mira was born on January 3rd, and we love her already. This came in from your friend Sari, and we heartily endorse the sentiment. Mazel tov to the whole Lutz family. And one of my own, my niece Margalit Fremer, rocked Parshat Bashalach at her bat mitzvah at Anshe Chesed at 100th and West End this past Shabbat. Does that mean she had the same Parsha as Rebecca? She did have the same Parsha as Rebecca. Huh. And I said to Rebecca, I was like, you're going to be sitting there in the pews kind of, uh, like, you're going to- you Oh, could, that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. you could, Amateur. You could gabby this stuff. You could go up there and, uh, but no, no, no. Ra- uh, Margalit brought her own of her own mojo, her own A-game to the Parsha and it was a beautiful service. And, she put uh, her own spin on Bishalach. It was a darker, It was <laughs> kind of like the- yeah, the yeah. Joker. The of Song of the Sea was kind of minor key yeah. with some some big organ chords mm-hmm. and theremin in the back. And uh, Margalit did a great job. And uh, I couldn't be more proud as an uncle. Uh, mazel tov, Margalit. Friends, you know that sometimes we turn to you in the J Crew for content. We need you. We have some really good themed episodes coming up and we need your input. So think hard. If you have anything to contribute, if you want to be interviewed, if you want to read something on the air, if you want to help us in any way, For any of these episodes, we're going to do a show about Jewish hair. That's not just for women. That's not just for people with curly hair. It's whatever Jewish hair means to you. Do you have anything to tell us about your experience with Jewish hair? Also, what about converting? We always do our conversion episode around Shavuot. That's this spring. 
please let us know. Are you going through a conversion? Do you know someone who's gone through a conversion? Did you convert and have a terrible experience? Did you convert and then convert back? Are you thinking about converting? Whatever the story is, we want to hear it. And finally, we're bringing back the Jews Around America episode, only this time we're calling it Jews Around the World. Do you have a story from a tiny or lesser known or neglected Jewish community anywhere? Are you from a place where nobody would ever think there's a Jew? Did you ever in your travels come to a place where you didn't think you'd find a Jew, but you found one? Were you ever at a Shabbat dinner in an area of the world where you wouldn't think Jews were even allowed? Jews Around the World coming up this July. So Jewish hair, conversion, Jews Around the World. What you got for us, people? Email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or just call us, leave us a voicemail, 914-570-4869. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts, unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us, 914-570-4869. We do have a newsletter. It's written by one Liel Leibowitz. You can subscribe by going to bit.ly slash podcast. You should wear and carry unorthodox. Are you Hanukkah shopping for next Hanukkah or just birthday shopping? Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and onesies. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Alana Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Tablet Magazine's editor-in-chief is Alana Newhouse, and our executive editor is Wayne Hoffman. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Sam Yolen of Congregation Beth Israel in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which is still mourning its Oscar loss. Shalom, friends. <laughs>